Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in campaigning and community organising. We work with non-profit and community-based organisations, trade unions, progressive businesses and social democratic parties across the globe. Dunn Street develops community engagement strategies and organising strategies to win campaigns both big and small. And we train engagement staff, volunteers and organisers in leadership and power building. And if you want to create change in your community in 2023, then hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. When you need support with a legal issue, it can feel daunting. And that's why for over 100 years, Morris Blackburn has been helping guide clients with their legal needs. They're here to help you when you need them the most, from workplace to medical injuries, class actions, occupational diseases and wills and estates planning. And as Australia's leading plaintiff law firm, they have the local knowledge and the national network with the experience that you can count on. And to find out more, just go to their website, which is morrisblackburn.com.au. And finally, today's episode is brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters and you need the tools that you can trust. The lists are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive those donations, events that will energize the community online and offline and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, visit their website, which is swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly center-left politics and organizing podcast that drops every Friday that dives into the progressive campaigns of the day and the people leading them both home and abroad. And we head across the ditch to New Zealand today to talk to my good friend, Neil Jones. Uh, It was the New Zealand national elections on the same day as the uh, referendum here in Australia on Saturday, the 14th of October. Unfortunately, the Labor Party over there didn't get returned back into government. They lost to National and Chris Luxton, 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 uh, but to help me unpack the results uh, and uh, basically do a bit of a campaign review, I guess, and more broader, a bit of a government review uh, of Labor's time in office uh, and where to from here, uh, Neil and I are going to have a bit of a conversation uh, about that. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, give us five stars on Apple Podcast. Uh, and when you're done listening, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser. And for all updates, follow Dunn Street on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Oh, I shouldn't say Twitter anymore. I should say X, shouldn't I? Must update that. Okay, let's get to today's episode. Okay, we are taping this one on a Tuesday afternoon on the lands of the Wurundjeri people and uh, on uh, Saturday the 14th of October, uh, there was an election in uh, the uh, the great nation of New Zealand at uh, the same time as we were having our, our referendum on the, uh, on, the, on the voice to parliament. Not a great day for the progressive side of politics both here in Australia and across the ditch because the result was a loss for the Labor government and see a, and saw a return to government for the Conservative Party, which in New Zealand is called National. To help me break that down, uh, he's been on the show a number of times. You know him very well. He's a former Chief of Staff to Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. He's now the Managing Director for Capital New Zealand Government Relations. 
uh, and to help me recap this election campaign. Uh, Neil Jones, welcome back to Socially Democratic. Good day, Stephen. Now, I must preface uh, this uh, this particular episode. We've done over the last couple of feels like over the last two or three years, certainly. Uh, for here in Australia, we've done a lot of post-election recaps where we've won. So it's just been like popping champagne and talking it up and loving life. Rarely have we had to do a, a post-election where we've lost. So I, I just need to preface this particular episode by saying that the intentions of this episode uh, is to reflect with both respect and compassion uh, because when our comrades lose elections, particularly from government, you know, folks lose jobs, uh, people who put their heart and soul into an election campaign uh, and then to lose, it hurts. Um, and we don't need left-wing podcasts pouring a bucket of shit on them after defeat. However, what we do want to do is we want to reflect on some of the lessons that possibly can be learned for our friends uh, going forward and to stimulate conversation. And in particular, this podcast is listened to by a lot of friends in New Zealand. We've got a sizable audience uh, in NZ, uh, and we know that they've got sort of views and opinions, so we wanted to have a – we've done three or four, you and I, episodes leading up to this particular election so we just thought it'd be appropriate to not go silent after the loss but actually to come back again and just have a bit of a chat about um, what did we take away from this campaign uh, and this government because they've been in for a while um, and hopefully some of our reflections and your in particular your reflections and your insights can help the party going forward so with that uh, I want to um, I want to kick off by talking about the results to start with um, and what we can draw from those results. And for our Australian audiences um, that aren't familiar, uh, Labor uh, was reduced from 62 seats um, in the single cameral parliament, <laughs> unicameral, I should say, uh, parliament, uh, down to 34. That was a loss of uh, 31 seats. National went from 34 to 50. They picked up 17. The Greens actually picked up four. They went from nine to 14 um and act which is on that broad right coalition picked up one uh new zealand first picked up eight uh and to party maori picked up two um neil were you surprised by the results not really because uh labor had been quite far behind for most of the campaign uh I was hoping that the last week or two of the campaign where national really did pretty badly might have might have just tipped it a bit more in Labor's favour. Um, in fact, National did lose five percent uh, between the advance vote of the first of the last two weeks and the preliminary count on election day. So, if you count up the advance votes, National got forty one point five percent. If you count up the votes cast on election day, they only got thirty six point five. So, there was a pretty catastrophic collapse at the very end of the campaign for National, but not enough to stop them forming government. But potentially, and there are still special votes to come, which one in five votes cast are a special vote, and that's overseas voters are some of them, but most are people who are out of the electorate on the day or who, who register on the day, and that tends to swing left. Typically, one or two seats go to the left, so it's likely that National and Act won't be able to govern alone, and they'll need the populist New Zealand First Party as part of their coalition. And what that means is that National and Act, who have quite a flinty neoliberal view of the world, will find themselves constrained by New Zealand First, which is far more centrist in its economic policy, um, and they'll have a much more chaotic coalition having three parties to wrangle. So not all bad news on election night. No. Winston, Winston Peters, that uh, that constant kingmaker of New Zealand politics, rises again. It's incredible. I mean, when someone writes a book about his career, it's going to be a fascinating read. 
Well, it's the second time he's been turfed. His party's been turfed out, and they've come back in, um, which is remarkable under our system. It's the, the, the only party who've managed to do that, and they've done it twice. Um, I was going to say the other thing that was surprising on election night was how Labor didn't pick up Nationals' decline in the final days. Um, it seemed through the campaign that no matter how much Labor threw at National, you could drag their vote down, but it wasn't going back to Labor. And I think that kind of speaks to some of the challenge Labor had, where a lot of the voting base had just become frustrated or alienated through the cost of living crisis and had abandoned Labor, and no matter what Labor did, just weren't coming back. Yeah, that's an interesting reflection. So let's, um, I actually want to dive into that uh, in a moment. Let's talk about that. But um, before we do that, I think it's worthwhile for those that hadn't been paying attention to uh, New Zealand electoral politics or just New Zealand politics in general uh, to set the scene. And I just want to go back to the start of the year because it, there was a seismic shift in the the, the political landscape uh, when then Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern um, shocked New Zealand politics and decided to uh, retire from politics in, in total. Um, in hindsight, I'm wondering, you know, if you think about the foundations for a successful campaign, uh, and, I, and I frame this question not in a sort of, I'm not having a pot shot at uh, Jacinda. I mean, she's well in her right to say, you know what, I'm tapping them out, I've had enough. But from a, just from, from a, looking at it through the lens of a getting ready for a campaign, did that catch the party on the hop a little bit in a year that you're about to start to prepare for the election and you've got your leader at the top of the ticket and off you go, you've got your policy set and let's just do this? Look, undoubtedly, when when the prime minister resigns in at the end of January in election year, that <laughs> that does um, disrupt things a bit. Um, but look, I think people understood the reasons, and the reality was, while Jacinda Ardern is a, has been was a very consequential prime minister of New Zealand, and while she had been incredibly popular, um, you know, getting that fifty percent, um, that first ever parliamentary majority under MMP in twenty twenty, post COVID, there had been quite a shift in public perceptions of Jacinda Ardern, her personal popularity and the party's popularity had been declining for some time. There's a certain level of sort of misogynistic and conspiracy-driven toxicity around Jacinda Ardern. Um, I think I spoke on this show previously about how whenever she went out in public, um, there were people, you know, conspiracy theorists threatening her, chasing after her, screaming at her, putting up posters threatening to kill her. It It was pretty ugly. And I think she correctly identified that the best way for Labor to have a chance was for her to step out of the scene and let someone else have a go. And to be honest, you know, when it first happened, that most people's thought was, oh, well, Jacinda's gone, we're stuffed. Mm. But Chris Hipkins very quickly managed to pivot. Uh, the caucus was remarkably unified in the way they transitioned to, to a new leader. And Hipkins very quickly cleared away some of the policy programs that were being undertaken that by the Ardern government that were not necessarily unpopular, but were seen by voters to be sort of distractions um, when they were concerned about cost of living. These are things like the TVNZ, Radio New Zealand merger, or the sustainable biofuels mandate. They were a series of issues that sort of, Chris Hickens said, look, these aren't priorities now. And he cast himself as kind of a, non-flashy, workman-like guy who was from the working-class suburb of Upper Hutt, who liked a sausage roll and a meat pie and was focused on cost of living and focused on bread and butter issues. And that was what the public wanted to hear. And he immediately shot, Labor's vote shot from the low 30s up to 38%. 
um, his preferred prime minister coming in was very high. And people thought, you know, there was a view there that Labour was back in the box seat to win the election when previously they'd been written off. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, yes, it was a shock, but I think I think that transition in those early stages put Labour in a good position for the election. You described a scenario there, and as I was listening to you say that, I, I could have replaced the words Jacinda Ardern with Daniel Andrews, and I, I you know, I'm con- reticent to, you know, always compare everything to Daniel Andrews because in some ways he is a political phoenix. I'm not a phoenix, a, a unicorn, wrong um, mythology. Um, but, you know, unpop, yeah, sorry, locked up Victorians more than any other jurisdiction in the world uh, during COVID, uh, was constantly threatened by crackpot cookers, like literally had a member of the Victorian parliament get up in front of uh, a rally at Flinders Street Station and call on people to shoot him in the head. Like this is insane kind of shit, right? Mm. Uh, Cookers running against him in his local seat and just getting uh, a lot of their crazy conspiracies on the main news items of, you know, mainstream Mm. television each night. All this is going on and yet Labor returns with a swing to, uh, sorry, an increased majority of the house, the the lower house. So it, also with a strong issue around cost of living as well. Like that was was the major current running through the 2023, uh, what year is this? It was last year, 2022. All these years are all blurring. 2022 election, right? Cost of living was the central issue for that campaign, yet Labor won. Uh, Now, you can push back and say, well, you're comparing apples and oranges here because that's New Zealand, this is Victoria. But I'm just wondering, it is possible to be in that scenario and still come in. Now, Labor's polls never sunk to the low, the level they did in New Zealand. Why did they sink to that point? Because you said that they were low 30s to get up to 38. It's still not enough, though, is it, to get back in the hunt, right? I mean, look, it's possible that for a state government, you don't get you don't catch the blame for, for inflation as much as a, as, a, as a central government does. New Zealand has a, you know, we don't have a, a, a federal system. We have a unitary government. And so I think there's no there's no blaming the federal government here. Um, Labor caught the whole blame for it. Um, look, the reality is the, the right track, wrong track from about 2021 started going down. Um, Jacinda Ardern and Labor went down, and that was cost of living. Inflation was over 6%. Interest rates were steadily rising by the time of the campaign. Floating rates were at 8%. Um, and, you know, petrol prices, you know, prices at the supermarket, the, people were really struggling. Mm. And I think you add to that, you know, some of the hangovers from COVID. So there was some, you know, Aucklanders tell me that there is still some residual anger about the second lockdown in Auckland, how long it went on. Now, you can argue, as I would, about, you know, the trade-offs there and how 20,000 lives were saved and how that was probably necessary. But there was anger about that. And there was some flow-on effects. Kids who were disengaged from education, you know, some crimes that had emerged with young people, um, you know, ongoing issues with the health system. So, there was quite a there was an environment where there was quite a lot of challenges that any government would have struggled in, and maybe, maybe in terms of cost of living, um, Labor could have owned that. There was an argument back when Hipkins polls rose early on when you refocused on cost of living that you could make an argument to say, which party are you going to trust in a cost of living crisis? Labor, which has always stood for working families, or National, which stands for the wealthy. Um, I don't know whether Labor could have. Uh, really credibly addressed cost of living. But 
I do think the public didn't believe they had. Why not? So, though? Can, I, can I push you on that one, Neil? Why don't you think they could have credibly done that? Sorry, I said I don't know if they could have credibly yeah. done it. It's possible that no matter what you throw at it, um, unless you unless you massively go into debt and probably risk soaking inflation by giving big tax cuts and transfers, um, you're not going to be able to address a 6% annual cost of living increase. Uh, that is, you know, the government was taking 25 cents a litre of petrol for a while. Um, that was ruinously expensive. So, I mean, it would have been quite, it would have taken quite a, quite a lift from government, I think, to credibly address it. I think the challenge is they, they, they didn't. So, um, you probably needed to throw the kitchen sink at it, and I mm. don't think Labor did that. I think that for far too long in election year, people were waiting. They liked what Chris Hipkins said about cost of living, and they were waiting. And the budget came. Nothing. There wasn't really anything tangible there for people. And then by the time of the campaign, they sort of relate. They released what were a very good social democratic set of policies, like. Um, four weeks of parental leave and extending early childhood education subsidies and, you know, free prescriptions and, you know, policies like that. Um, but I, I don't think people looked at it and said, that's what I need to ease pressure at the pump or at the checkout and to feed my family. I think national, its tax cut policy was utterly discredited and broken by the campaign, but they had quite a simple message, which was, we're offering you tax relief. I think Labor had quite a complicated set of policies that were only tangentially related to cost of living, and I don't think people ultimately believe Labor could address it. Um, but the reason I give some caution is I don't want to sit here in hindsight and say, well, it was easy, mm. because these things are really hard, and even if Labor played a blinder in those, in those economic conditions, um, it, it may not have been enough. I, I, I do think there's a case to be made. The election was lost before Chris Lipkins took over. How much um, do we um, credit the the rise of uh, Chris Lux, Luxton and National in terms of them getting their shit together? Um, yeah. Look, de- definitely I think Chris Luxton becoming leader of National and National becoming a disciplined and focused opposition was, was hugely determinative. And Luxton immediately rose in the polls. Um, Look, when you're when you're a former CEO and people have got economic concerns, um, that tends to be a good recipe in politics. People think CEOs understand money, money and budgets, and so must have the answers. Um, I think National as well. You know, he managed to get the caucus disciplined. Success often does that, um, but you you saw an end to that backbiting and infighting that had plagued National for years. But I think critically, they they really focused on a couple of key issues and they were relentlessly on message. So, you know, you ask anyone what national story was, they'd say Labor has spent too much money and they've stoked inflation and they've let crime get out of control. And national's going to give you tax cuts, rein in government spending and crack down on, on crime. Mm. And that was a very simple message and it really cut through to people. Um, and they, they didn't get distracted. They had quite a quite a sparse policy um, manifesto. They, they really didn't go into it. There were many areas that didn't even announce policy on. Um, they targeted where are the issues people are hurting and attacked the government relentlessly and came up with, you know, quite flimsy but popular policies to address it. 
I mean, it's such a key learning, isn't it, uh, in any political campaign? Like in 2019, Labor had, you know, 100 new policies or some shit like that. I mean, just like, mm. yeah, I, 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 I'm, a, I'm a simple person. I'm not that bright. I think voters are so busy that they haven't got time for all the nuances in a campaign. They just gi- just give me this, just give me the straight up, give me the, t- the cliff notes, you know, just give us the top line about what I need to know before I go on to vote. And if there are three things, then that, if I can remember that and I like that, then I'll vote for it, right? Yeah, look, well, I mean, one of the lessons I learned from when I worked for Labor and opposition was the more you say, the less people hear. Mm. You've, you've got to keep it really simple and focused. There was, I mean, I... I actually want to raise this question as well about um, being focused. Uh, I know that there was a loss of several Labor ministers leading up to the poll. I just wonder, is that internal beltway shit that no one even knew about and cared about, or did that have an impact in voter land? I think, look, if it had been one or two ministers, I I think you might have said, oh, it's pretty beltway. But, you know, Hipkins was relatively new in the job. People were giving the benefit of the doubt. They thought he was competent from his time as a minister, which he is. And then he had, over a period of a couple of months, he had four ministers go, one sacked for leaking cabinet information to his donors, uh, one for jumping political parties with no explanation, one for not disclosing shares in a, shares in a company they regulated, um, and one who crashed into the back of a parked car and was charged with reckless driving and um, failing to accompany a police officer. Uh, that was the justice minister. So, you know, when that happens, uh, it does cut through and... I think if you look at the two part two areas during the year, the polling collapse, one of them was the budget when people felt Labor hadn't really addressed cost of living in May. And then through June, July, when this was happening, uh, these ministers were uh, being lost, shall we say. Hmm. Uh, the polls declined again. And I, I think it really did hit Hipkins and Labor's credibility because Chris Hipkins was this new broom. He was this new guy in charge of Labor. Things were going to be different. He was getting rid of the stuff he didn't like. He was doing things he did like. And then when all that happens, people kind of go, hang on, this is the same stuff I didn't like before. You're just the same crowd that I'd already given up on, and you can't control them. And I think that that probably hurt his leadership and his credibility with the voters at a critical time. It's that moment in political campaigns that I know that I've been on both sides of when it's happened. 2007 in the Rudd election year, there was just things that weren't going right for the Howard government, and you were like, I think we're going to win because it just – just those little annoying things that you're like, oh, we just can't catch a break. And it was happening to Howard. Uh, and I remember that used to happen to us all the time, but we never, ever got a break. Uh, and I know that if you were national watching that, you'd be going, oh, my God, this is just unraveling on the other side. Like, the, you know, they're already mm-hmm. behind. They don't need these type of things happening consistently. And the, the litany that you just went through there would be enough for you to go – this is just like it's even if you're like a not a, <laughs> if you're a person of faith or not, but you'd be thinking, oh my god, the politi- the gods of politics are on our side right now because of the things happening to your opponent, right? Yeah, look, when I when I when I woke up one morning to news that the justice minister was facing charges, um, you know, I kind of thought that's the end. You know, I don't know how you recover from that. That feels like a footnote to the go- an end note to the government. Yeah, it's to quote uh, John Armitage, who's been on our show before. It's, it's when that happens, it's brutal. Yeah. It's just brutal for you, right? Yeah, and it is annoying because none of these things are policy issues. None of these things are, um, you know, should none of these things are things that voters should look at and say, "Well, that that that's going to make my life better or worse." But it does speak to competence and capability, and vo- voters do care about that. That that is increasingly important for voters, particularly in New Zealand. Yeah. 
We talked about policy before. I just want to reflect on uh, the policies that Labor took to this particular poll and compare mm. them to, to National because you said that National were very good at getting it down to a couple of three or four key areas. Mm. Um, and we talked before about the cost of living as being central to this particular campaign. Did Labor have enough in the tank to address this issue? Well, I mean, the things that they – you mentioned a bunch of things that they did do. Yeah. And historically, like, Labor, Labor parties have always, in the eyes of the voter, when you talk if – you, if you were to sort of say, what are your party strengths and policies, what are your party weaknesses and policies, cost of living historically has been bad for Labor. You know, jobs, health, education, public transport, infrastructure, mm-hmm. good generally, – generally speaking, good for Labor – the economy cost of living bad, but something that Albo did in, in the national election last year, and then Andrews um, in, uh, in in Victoria was able to take cost of living and use it as a positive for Labor and frame it in such a way. And I saw things that were coming out from from the Hipkins government that I thought were going in that direction to say, "Hey, look, we are actually tangibly addressing cost of living, and not through tax cuts, but through other ways that we can actually get money in your pocket straight away." Mm-hmm. What happened there? I mean, I would just say Elbow had a bit easier because he was trying to get into government on cost of living. And I remember seeing an ad um, that he had done about um, the price of a lettuce or something. I, I can't remember the exact ad. But I remember seeing it and going, you could use that exact ad on, against Labour in New Zealand and it yeah, would right. be devastating. So, you know, I think if the tide was turned and it was the New Zealand Labour Party trying to win this election, um, they would have found cost of living to be to their advantage. Um, look, I, I, I do think one of the challenges Labour had was that there wasn't a lot of money to go around. So they got they got to election year and the books were very, very tight. So there wasn't much room to spend without new revenue. And because inflation was high, there was a risk that any money you do you do spend on addressing cost of living ends up stoking inflation. So for example, National has put out some reasonably large tax cuts, which all of the advices will end up probably prolonging inflation. And so that's also a thing to consider. Um, one of the challenges Labor had was there was a there was a proposal that Grant Robertson and David Parker worked on for a wealth tax, uh, which would have, I think, done a 0.5% tax on wealth over about a million or $2 million and would have led to a $20 a week tax cut for every taxpayer. Um, something like that. You know, there's a, there's a debate in Labor. Should they have done that? Chris Hipkins ruled it out. Um, some in Labor say that was a great missed opportunity. Um, and that could have shown a real difference from national, really helped workers, um, you know, with a with a decent equitable tax cut and showing they were, whose side they were on. Others argue it would have just ended up Labor being bogged down by arguments from the economic establishment about this novel tax they were proposing. Um, but that debate will be ongoing. Um, I do think, though, the lack of the lack of new revenue. And the lack of money in the in the in the in the um, in the budget meant Labor was quite constrained in what it could do, and that ended up having a relatively mild election policy offering, um, which I think didn't inspire voters. Having said that, you know I think the elect- the election I mean the, the voting the, the Labor's vote basically collapsed late August early September into the late twenties, and that was before most of the policies were announced. So by the time the policy platform was announced. I'd say the election was probably lost. Um, and I think probably doing, I think being more focused on money in your pocket earlier on might have made a difference. I think quite often we end up over-targeting and we say if you've got 
two kids and you're on a vet and you're a veteran and you've got a disability this and if you've got the you know it's all very targeted and no one really knows what they're going to get and i do think i do think a simpler kind of here is some money targeted low and middle income earners might have been more effective but again i don't want to pretend that 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 would have been the answer mm. um i don't think you know that could have happened and it, it, we may have no, no different outcome um it did feel through the election year that just everything was against Labour and the mood had turned against Labour and that people weren't really listening. So, you know, I'm really cautious not to sit here and in hindsight say you should have done this one simple thing and it would have won you the election. Oh, I mean, this is the ultimate Monday quarterback, quarterback <laughs> podcast, obviously, so we need to acknowledge that. Um, would it? I mean, to that point, though, is there value in making some of those announcements that would go to addressing the cost of living, making them earlier, like substantially earlier. Yeah, look, I, I think the budget in May was probably the time Labor needed to do a really substantive cost of living package. And that not happening probably probably meant that they went, went into the second half of the year without a credible story on cost of living. And I think that probably hurt them. Let's take a quick break to talk about SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust. Lists that are up to date, absolutely. Phone banks uh, that can change minds. Emails that drive donations and events that will energize the community online and offline. And text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Okay, let's get back to the show. And even if you can maybe pull back even more on that, then, I, you know, the the idea of using the, 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 the resources and the trappings of government through the cycle of a government in addressing uh, the needs of an electorate, uh, mm. you know, I'm talking years out. I know you've got three-year terms and there's an argument, I think, broadly speaking, that we all should have at least four-year terms. I think three years is just ridiculous to try and, effectively govern right same issue here in in australia we once had a referendum to amend it in our constitution so there'll be fixed four-year terms and the australian public voted no there you go um so uh i don't know if you, how you can change it in your in your setup but um, it's always talking about but it never happens oh I don't know. anyway so the I'm, I'm interested in getting a, from some reflections from from you about how the government sought to use its time in office away from the election you know, year to implement good public policy to address the issues that folks in New Zealand are experiencing, how that went through in the delivery of that and with the public service and and, and, that, and, and the like? Well, look, I do, I do want to say, I mean, this government did make some really good achievements. So 77,000 kids were out of poverty under this government now in a population of 5 million. So think about, you know, a quarter of the quarter or fifth the side of Australia, size of Australia. That's a lot. So 77,000 kids out of poverty. Um, 200,000 houses were built under this government. You know, it's one in 10 houses in New Zealand were built under the Ardern government, uh, Ardern-Hipkins government. Record number of state houses, biggest build since the 1950s. You know, climate emissions have dropped for the last three years. Um, you know, workers got fair pay agreements, the first sort of industry bargaining we've seen in decades. Well, they got it, but it wasn't 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 through in time for it to actually have an effect. So there were, there were some pretty substantive um, achievements. Low paid workers had some of the biggest increases ever. Huge, you know, big increases of beneficiaries. Um, so I think I think there was a lot to be proud of, and Labor did deliver a lot. One of the challenges they had, of course, as well, was the COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, 
they they were in power for sort of two two or three years, sort of two years. This pandemic came along, that took out a chunk, and then they had sort of a year and a half out the back of that to make a difference. So I want to be a bit easy on them there, but I, I do think I do think there was a challenge at times with getting things through the public service. Um, I think some of that was policy that probably was op- designed in opposition and probably wasn't in hindsight particularly good, um, such as Kiwi Build, which just wasn't a good policy and Labor held on for far too long. But I think also there are areas where Labor does have to think for next time, how do we get things through? And one of them is light rail. Um, the first announcement Jacinda Ardern made in 2017 was light rail from Auckland CBD to the airport um, and to Mount Roskill within four years. Well, we're six years on and not a single inch of track is laid. Hmm. They haven't got a contract. No one knows what the route is or what the stops are. Um, the public look at that and they say, how have you got nowhere? Um, similarly with mental health, um, they've had to build a new system. They've made some gains, things like the Access and Choice program, which offers free counselling, is happening. But years on, um, there's questions about why is why has that money not been done? Why are there no why you know why there's is there not a single more acute bed? So I think there are some real challenges on delivery and ministers, you know, well, Labour in hindsight needs to think about what could we have done to push the public service along and get things done? Because um, that became something that dogged Labour, sort of Labour can't deliver, became a, a real meme, and it was something that Christopher Luxon said in nearly every interview, and people believed. Mm. And while it wasn't fair, because Labour did deliver a lot, including a world-leading COVID response, there were some really high-profile examples that I think undermined the government's record. Um, I think also there were some areas where the government, I think, misunderstood how you make enduring change. The The view tended to be that we'll get all the stakeholders around together, get them all to agree on an issue, and then we'll make the change, and that will survive through future governments. And that may have worked with the Zero Carbon Bill, now the Zero Carbon Act, but there are lots of areas where it didn't. Um, fair pay agreements, you know, um, rights for contractors, uh, agricultural emissions pricing, um, income insurance. Uh, these are all areas where, at the last minute, business and agricultural interests pulled out and started attacking it, and years were wasted. And my view is that the way you make enduring change is you get change through, you make sure it works and is effective, and you make sure there's a constituency behind it so that it's popular enough that the next government can't unwind it. And Labor did that last time with Working for Families, and John Key came in, having been very critical of it. He called it he called it communism by stealth. And, you know, so this was, you know, transfer payments to families and on low incomes. And actually, he came in, didn't get rid of it. Mm. Um, and, I, and, I, you know, and the classic example is Thatcher and the NHS. You know, Thatcher famously didn't undermine the NHS. And the reason wasn't because Margaret Thatcher ideologically loved socialised healthcare. It was because she knew it was popular and she couldn't touch it. Yeah. And I think I looked to fair pay agreements and I can't, you know, it just, it kind of angers me to be honest that this was such an important thing for working New Zealanders, so core to Labor's agenda. And it was, instead of bashing it through in the first three months, it was, it went through official, it went through official papers and reviews and working groups to the point that it came in so late that not a single one will be signed before National repeals it. And that, to me, is a lesson in the need for speed and for effectiveness in getting public buy-in. Because if you had bus drivers, cleaners, supermarket workers, dairy workers, security guards, major sectors all covered by fair pay agreements, which are, for Aussies, they're similar to modern awards, you've then got a constituency who have something to lose and who will fight to protect it. 
It's a really important reflection you've made there, Neil, and it's something that I'd uh, were talking to some uh, union friends uh, in New Zealand um, were m- remarking to me about how they've been negotiating with the government or with the department mm. uh, for, and one of them was, uh, uh, I think it was a particular sector that was covering 65,000 care and support workers across aged care, disability and mental health. Uh, and they're still seeking the wage claim uh, up until uh, election day. And, you know, I have the words of Daniel Andrews on my head saying, you know, you know, on, you know having ongoing negotiations with workers in an election year uh, in a sector that is Labor's bread and butter is unforgivable. Uh, and I just, I just wonder about what kind of relationship government has with let's talk about the union movement what kind of relationship does the government have with the union movement i I know the union movement for australian listeners there aren't as many unions affiliated to the labor party in new zealand as there are in australia uh some of the bigger ones particularly nurses and teachers are outside of the party but they are in australia as well the nurses aren't affiliated uh to the labor party nor are the teachers um the nurses in victoria are hugely important stakeholder for Labor governments and have been over the last, you know, 10 years of this particular Labor government, uh, the ANMF, uh, great allies. But they've got a great relationship with the government and I think that they've worked at that. Does there mm. is there a need, if you let's think forward, maybe reflect on what's happened in the past, but think forward, is there a need for the parliamentary wing of the Labor Party to start to go back and reset the relationships with both affiliated unions and with non-affiliated unions so that when it comes election time, those members are out there doing the right thing by the party and by themselves. Yeah, look, absolutely. I, I think when it comes to the affiliated unions, there is a pretty good relationship generally, um, and, and they work hard to help support a Labor government. They donate, they get out there, they knock on doors, they host phone banks, they do all of that. Um, I think there is from frustration at the slowness of delivery. I mean, fair pay agreements, obviously, the care and support workers uh, agreement we discussed just now. Um the CTU, this campaign, actually ran a ran a strong campaign, um, which had a real impact on the election. But I think generally with the non-affiliated unions, and particularly the public sector unions, there is a real disconnect between the Labour Party and government and those unions. Um, and look, you can, you can probably criticise both sides. I think there were times that some public sector unions probably thought that their job was just to go out and fight industrial claims against Labour for their members and fight harder against Labor than they would against National because the doors open, mm. and often those took quite a negative, you know, quite a negative tone, um, and no real sense of what had been gained, but only what hadn't been given. Similarly, I think Labor at times failed to reach out to some of those unions, failed to build those relationships, um, failed to work together on what a long-term plan looks like. Um, so, look, I'm not going to cast blame on either side, but I think for the for the broader movement. I think one of the tragedies is you had a government this time that gave some of the biggest pay rises in New Zealand history to nurses and teachers. You know, still not saying that there are, that, that the pays there where it should be, but significant pay increases. And voters went to the polls thinking Labor had failed to pay nurses or teachers properly. Mm. In fact, when I said to people, you know what, there have actually been some record pay increases for nurses, they just didn't believe me. They thought I was lying um, because that story hadn't been told. And I think they need to find a much better way of working together in the future. Going to that story, how that story needs to be told, and more broadly with um, let's go beyond just our traditional 
most important stakeholder, which is trade unions. Let's expand that out a bit further and just talk about stakeholder engagement. An area of the campaign that I have historically never paid any attention to, and it wasn't until the 2018 Victorian State campaign, that there was four people who sat in the corner of CHQ, and some of them were my friends that I've known for a long, long time, and I wandered over and said, what do you guys do? <laughs> what do you guys do? And they went, oh, we do stakeholder relationship. Oh, really? Well, what's your day like? And they walked me through it. These guys are phenomenal. The work that they do in a campaign is critical because it's the it's that when the leader stands up and does a press stop, there are members of that stakeholder community standing with them. When they want to get some lines out, they're going to get Betty the nurse or you know Jimmy the plumber or whatever it might be. That particular someone from that stakeholder community giving lines to the media. It's that sort of third party endorsement. So there's some you know manifestation of good work over the life of a government in which you can deliver an election campaign. Uh, the, 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 this stakeholder team were were doing a phenomenal piece of work. But even going back further than that, the work that you, the government does in terms of building those relationships with these key stakeholders, I'm talking about industry groups, I'm talking about civic groups, community organisations, and obviously trade unions and business associations, mm. having that relationship and working at that relationship, developing that policy and then delivering those policies and then having those people go and talk to their audiences is such an important bit of work in terms of government right something i'd never really paid much attention to one thing i noticed during this campaign i saw chris hipkins constantly doing media events on his own and not having people around him and i just wondered what kind of what 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 work or what strategy was we know what work was being done behind the scenes from a from i guess it's the parliamentary team right to ensure that when a minister goes up and announces a policy, there are stakeholders with them. And, or when the, the the top guy is doing an announcement, he's not there standing in front of a Labor hoarding on his own. It, looks, it just looks shit. Yeah, look, I mean, I can't speak to how the campaign managed it, but certainly my experience over the last at least three years of government, possibly six, is Labor tended, and government tended to see stakeholder relationships as, a, as an afterthought, if at all. And I think that was quite that was probably quite damaging in the long term. Um, I think people were often surprised by things that came out, even things that were positive, um, let alone things that were negative. Mm. Um, I think often um, they felt they weren't listened to. I think a lot of the time uh, ministers sort of thought, well, I've got my official briefings. I know all there is to know on an issue. I'll make my policy announcement and off I go. And then seemed sort of baffled why everyone was angry at them. Um, I, I don't, look, I'm, I'm not saying it's simple, but I, I do think a far greater focus on stakeholder relations is needed. Um, you know, even when there's bad news, if you can ring someone the night before and say, hey, look, this is coming, this is what it means, this is why we're doing it, can I talk you through it? You can even take the sting out of an attack. Hell yeah. If you've got good news, your stakeholders shouldn't find out because a press release comes through their inbox or a journalist calls them. They should be ready to go. And yeah. And I just think that didn't really happen through the through the life of this government and at least in my experience and I and I think that's something that an opposition is going to be critical because in opposition many of your stories when you're attacking a government come from stakeholder allies they're the ones who bring you problems and so I think that's something Labor has to really focus on over the next few years. Just can't underestimate the, the, the power of narrative and narrative coming from not politicians, but from ordinary punters that look like you or not like you and me, but look like, <laughs> look like certainly Certainly in opposition, um, some of the best stories we ever did didn't even have Labor's name on them. Um, we gave them to a journalist and stakeholder allies ran the ran the attack on exactly. the government. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, yeah. Let's talk about the future. Um, where does the 
I want to talk about where the party goes next. Does mm. does Chris Hipkins remain as leader? And actually, for our, our non New Zealand audience, you might want to just give a bit of ex- explanation about how the, what, what the process is after we after Labor goes back into opposition in terms of how they deal with the leadership. It's actually quite unique, and I think it's an interesting thing that's worth sharing. Yeah. So so in the New Zealand Labor Party under our, under our constitution. After within three months of a general election, the leader has to undergo a confirmation vote among the caucus, and if they lose that, um, unless you know it goes to a leadership race, uh, if there's more than one candidate and one doesn't have a predominant um, support, it goes out to a broader party electoral college, which involves several months of a roadshow around the country of leadership contenders and electoral college made up of members, caucus members, and union affiliate members um, voting on it. Um, Chris Hipkins, yeah, he didn't resign on election night, which I thought was the good was a good thing. Um, Helen Clark resigned in 2008 on election night when she lost, and that meant Phil Goff came in, didn't get a honeymoon because everyone was talking about the new government, and there wasn't really a chance for the party to sort of talk about what next. Hmm. Um, so I think Chris Hipkins did the right thing not to resign. Um, he hasn't made his intentions clear yet whether he wants to move on, whether he wants to stay for a period um, and have a transition, whether he wants to try and fight 2026. He, he just hasn't said anything yet. Uh, I imagine once the special votes are counted and we know who the caucus is, we'll have a bit, he might start to make to firm up those decisions. He's certainly going to start hiring staff soon for opposition if he's going to. So, you know, there is some urgency there. I Look, I think one of the challenges Labor has is they don't have any obvious alternative contender. Um, I think if Michael Wood or Michael Wood or Kelly Allen were seen as possible future leaders, they both ended up being two of the four ministers who got themselves in trouble and both found themselves out of parliament. Kelly Allen decided not to stand. Michael Wood lost his seat. Um, and so there's really no clear alternative right now. Um, I think the general view is, of, is the best thing is for Chris Hipkins to at least stay for a period, um, allow the dust to settle, uh, get that election review underway, start to do some sort of thinking about where next. And then once once the dust has settled, if someone else wants, if, if he decides to move on or someone else wants to have a go, then do that. Um, and, and, and Labor can start to think maybe in a year or so about what its policy platform looks like. But actually the challenge now is not to have some kind of fratricidal war about a wealth tax or, mm. you know, or return to the days of undermining and um, untidiness that dog labour for so long. Right now, there's actually an urgent job Labor has to do, and I think a responsibility, which is National and ACT um, have some pretty extreme policies. Uh, National has a 100-day plan, which involves repealing fair pay agreements, restoring 90-day trials, which allow sacking for no reason. Um, They want to reduce the amount amount of money beneficiaries get. They want to repeal a whole lot of Labor labor legislation. Um, They want to give tax cuts, which will be funded by slashing public servants, cutting benefits, um, selling homes to foreigners. I think there's actually a moment where Labor has to defend the people who it represents and do a good job at that and has to start to chip away at the new government's credibility and not not at this critical time um, be self-indulgent and decide to fight each other, you know, that, that the time will come to have those arguments about the future of the party, but I think let's just give three to six months of getting into opposition and then try and have an orderly, an orderly discussion about what we do next. 
Is there a need for renewal uh, in the caucus? Obviously, a lot of people would have uh, lost their seats in the um, in the aftermath of the election result. Um, but the types of people that did lose their seats are they are they folks that had been in there a while? Did a lot of younger MPs that had been elected? Did they manage to hold on? What's what does the makeup of the caucus look like now? Look, there's a bit of a, there's a bit of a mix of who lost because I mean Labor basically lost half its seats, so it lost some up and coming future talent. Um, it lost some experienced people actually who were lowly ranked and lost their seats. Um, I think the 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 challenge Labor has now is to think about what does it need in the short term in terms of its mix of experience and new talent, and then how does it bring people through um, who are going to be ministers in the next government. And so I think the question now is, among MPs who have been around for a while, um, are they going to be part of the next government? And if they're not, is it time to start thinking about moving on so some fresh faces can come in and get some experience? Um, the risk, of course, is if none of them do, you don't get their new talent in. But if, if, if all your experienced people leave, you, you end up with a caucus who don't have that institutional knowledge and experience mm. in opposition. So... I think they're going to have to handle it very carefully. Um, I think one of the challenges Labor faces is a lot of their MPs, even relatively senior MPs, have never been in opposition before. Um, so, you know, you have very good people who have even served as ministers, but, you know, but you know, Jan Tanetti and Aisha for example, who were ministers of health and education, very talented ministers, but have never been in opposition. So, you know, a lot of them have got some, they're going to have to, learn the craft of opposition and they have to learn it pretty quickly and that's where that experience will help yeah the um and i mean one thing i've always been it's always struck me remarkably anyway has been that the 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 infrastructure of the new zealand labor party as a campaign operation has always been really really good you know you can tell because we steal all of your good data people when we need election campaigns right so there's always been uh good people coming through or leading the campaigns uh, and I want to tip my hat to um, uh, both Rob Salmon and uh, Hayden Monroe as well, um, who have been there through uh, good times and obviously uh, challenging times as well. Um, is there? Do we see new generation of younger people coming into the mix as well in the in in the non political side, like the administrative side and the campaign side of the party as well? Yeah, look, there were some really good campaign managers and field organisers this time, and I mean, it was a. Re- I mean, one of the problems is when you lose a campaign everything's negative. It's all about what, what you did wrong. And if you win the campaign, all sins are forgiven. But the reality is Labor ran a really good campaign. I mean, the the number of person-to-person conversations nearly doubled from 2020. Um, fundraising was even higher than 2020. It wasn't high enough, but it was it was higher. We I think we ran a really good campaign. I mean, the problem you've got is when you have a swing that badly against your party, we know that Campaigns on the ground make a big difference when it's when it's close. When you've got a close election, a good campaign will win you an election. When you when you're twenty points behind or fifteen points behind, it it, it, it doesn't it doesn't it can't, it can't get you there. And you're knocking on doors and people are saying, "Yeah, well, I hear what you're saying, but you know, cost of living's high. I can't afford my groceries. Go away." And that's hard. But I think I think Labor ran a good field campaign. I think Hayden, as always, did an excellent job, and so did Rob. Um, so I think we've got to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater there. 
Which is always, to your point, it's always a challenge, right? Yeah. Because we all run around going, oh, that's got to go or that's got to go. And um, and it's, to your point, it's never the answer. Um, clearly. I mean, the reality is if, if Labor had somehow pulled off a miracle and won this election, the conversation we just had would be very different. I'd be yeah. talking about the, the masterful things Labor did that, that won them the election. And yeah. I have this reflection actually after 2017 where – um, I was asked after that election to go and present to a whole lot of people about Labor's brilliant strategy to win the 2017 election. And I started off by saying, had Jacinda Ardern not taken over seven weeks before and set everything alight, um, I wouldn't be invited to speak here. And if I and, 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 and people would say, Neil Jones, that guy who was in charge, who was chief of staff in that loser election where Labor <laughs> got trashed. <laughs> Instead, I'm telling you all the brilliant things we did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I even, like, I think, think about in election campaigns, if one particular element of a campaign didn't land as well as it normally does, we don't then just go around and say, well, we're never going to do that again. Like, like if the policies weren't great, no one's going around saying, policies, we're never going to release any more policies anymore, right? Like, it's just like, it's yeah. just like how, do, what, how, what worked, what do we hold on to, and what can we make better into the future? Exactly. And obviously, the party will go through that whole process uh, in the coming uh, weeks and, and months. Um, final reflections, uh, Neil, um, I just want to sort of, you know, reflect, hear your reflections on what the government actually did achieve over the years that they were in power uh, in that um, oddly shaped building in Wellington uh, that you all call the Beehive. Yeah, well, like I said earlier, I mean, there, there are significant achievements on child poverty, on climate change, on housing, on those core issues Labor campaigned on and which people will try to say to this day that did not achieve, but the numbers don't lie. But I think also, you know, one of the things that there's a lot of revisionism about at the moment is the COVID response. And you hear people, people saying, oh, Labor, you know, they were, the, the lockdowns in hindsight, they were I mean, justified or they were too strong or they should have been looser and all this. And MIQ, which was our um, the hotels, the managed isolation as people came into the country, that was terrible and miserable. And look, there are lots of things in hindsight you can look at and say that should have been done better. But I know from people, you know, close to me who were working on that, they were making decisions with often very limited information, very uncertain information, often with very limited time, and they had to make the best the best they could in those circumstances. And the reality is the the studies show twenty thousand people are alive today who would not have been alive otherwise. And had you know, I speak to people in other countries who who talk about friends and family members who died from COVID, and. You know, we, we haven't had that, that that level of death in New Zealand. Mm. And, and and I mean, fortunately, but also unfortunately, for you know, in terms of our discussion, if you, if you, you don't know that one of those 20,000 could have been your father or your brother or your best friend, you know, you don't know. If, if, if someone said to you, you just have to stay inside for a few months and your father gets to live, that seems like a very easy price to pay. But when 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 you just when you don't know who those twenty thousand people are, it, it feels in hindsight like a terrible, unjustifiable restriction on your freedoms. And I just think sometimes we lack perspective on that, and we also expect a level of perfection in hindsight with all the information we have now. But I think the government can hold its head high and say, at a time of national crisis, it managed to get New Zealand's economy through, avoid mass unemployment and save 20,000 lives. And I think that's a legacy to be really proud of. 
I think everyone who has that view or is sort of recasting the, the 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 narrative of COVID needs to go watch that film Contagion again and actually just remind us of exactly how how bad it could have got. Like you watch that and go, man, we really dodged a bullet there because you know because that kind of got out of hand. It's remarkable mm. that what happened. I just, I still look back on the the you know the the experience that we all had in terms of COVID. And and it, particularly here in Australia and New Zealand, and think, my God, thank God it wasn't like Italy, or thank mm. God it wasn't like places like New York, um, because yeah. we were so lucky. Um, lucky, hard work, you know, just trying to pull together community response, government leadership, yeah, you know, the whole the whole thing. It just how it materialized. I'm still absolutely. Uh, baffled, but also have admiration for everyone and anyone. And that's one thing I did find about, um, I, I don't know what it was like in New Zealand, but certainly here in Victoria, the, the, the COVID story was more of a story of like Victorians pulling together, you know, and that those cookers that were that constantly were uh, rallying and marching through the city, people just looked at them like, you, you, what, what planet are you actually on? Like ninety-eight percent of the Victorian population got vaccinated. That, that you know, actions speak louder than words. People silent talk about a silent majority. Like an overwhelming silent majority were like, "Yeah, it wasn't great." Would I rather that not be the case? No, but I'm glad we kind of got through it and we're on through through the other side. And I'm thankful for the, to your point that my father or my relatives who were susceptible to it are alive today. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, there you go. On that note, Neil Jones, thank you so much, not just for today's podcast. Thank you for your contribution to our New Zealand uh, election uh, episodes throughout the year because we've done probably three or four of them, maybe five of them actually. I appreciate your time, your insights. Never easy to come onto a show after a defeat, uh, but I'm grateful for um, your contribution, your insights and your honest reflections. And obviously we all want to see Labor get back into government in uh, three years' time. Um, and uh, we um, we hope uh, I can get you back on to talk about elections and how we're going to win next time. Always happy to. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And to get all the latest on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday. Socially Democratic was brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn Lawyers have spent more than a century paving the hard path to justice for everyday Australians. They've helped over 500,000 Australians turn their situation around and they know how the system works. Their experience and skills means you'll get the best results possible. Find out more on their website, morrisblackburn.com.au. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on. Socially Democratic was brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust, lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations, events that will energise the community online and offline, and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. To find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign.